0: Hello and welcome to Frequently Asked Questions from the session, Menopause Hormone Therapy, Where Are We Now? We are joined today by Dr. Martin Kwan. First off, Doctor, in low-dose vaginal ET use for atrophic vaginitis, are you still prescribing micronized progesterone in women with a uterus?
1: It's really uh, dependent on the dose of the uh, estrogen product that that you're using. if you're using what we would term low-dose vaginal estrogen therapy, which would, would be a, let's say, a vaginal estradiol tablet of 10 micrograms a day or 10 micrograms per tablet, or if you're using, let's say, conjugated equine estrogen and the dose was 0.3 milligram, if, you, if, the, if that's the dosing that, that you're using, the answer would be the, when you measure uh, estradiol levels in the bloodstream the estradiol levels are generally less than 20 picograms per ml, which is the level of estrogen that you actually see during the menopause. Therefore, in those patients, no, I don't think you need to be concerned of regarding endometrial stimulation. If you're using a higher than recommended dose, let's say you're using, a, a let's say, a 25-microgram tablet of, of the estrogen tablet. or uh, let's say 0.625 milligram of conjugated equine estrogen is your dose. In that particular circumstance, you can't be quite as confident. And oftentimes, what we do is we do need to sort of do some sort of surveillance of the uh, endometrium. And what I often do, do will, uh, what I often do is to uh, administer a progestin challenge test. What that is, is I, I prescribe a uh, Provera, which is medroxyprogesterone acetate, at a dose of 10 milligram a day for 10 days. If there is a withdrawal bleed as a result of that, then you know that the amount of vaginal estrogen is stimulating an endometrial lining, and yes, that patient is at higher risk for developing en- endometrial cancer, and there may very well be the need for uh, a, a progestin. If you do this though, what I typically do is I'll do it at at the end of, let's say, the first year of use, and then you can't stop there. In some patients, that stimulation isn't seen for a couple years later. So you would need to repeat it. I would I would repeat it for another couple years before I would feel confident that, that we're not stimulating uh, we're not stimulating the endometrial lining.
0: Can you speak to the safety of oral versus transdermal ERT?
1: Well, the, pro- the issue with that uh, primarily is the fact that when you give oral estrogen, there's what we call a first-pass effect through fir- first-pass effect through the liver. As a result of that, there's an increased production of proteins by the liver, including uh, coagulation factors, and that is really the genesis of the procoagulant effect that we see with estrogen therapy. If you give it transdermally, you do not get this procoagulant effect because there is no first-pass effect. As a result, the, the patient is not, does not become as hypercoagulable, if you will, as they would when they take oral estrogen. Studies indicate that with the use of transdermal estrogen, the risk of deep venous thrombosis is less than with oral estrogen. What are your thoughts regarding bioidentical hormones? Well, the short answer to that is that three preeminent organizations have come out against the use of bioidentical hormones. Specifically, those organizations are the North American Menopause Society, the Endocrine Society, and the American College of Obstetrics and Gynecology. Why do they not favor it? Well, there's a number of reasons. Uh, Many of these uh, people that prescribe bioidentical hormones rely on salivary hormone concentrations. There's absolutely no evidence that salivary hormone concentrations have any value as a tool for assessing a patient's hormonal needs. In addition, salivary hormone concentrations are known to vary throughout the day, which casts even greater doubt on their validity as a guide for prescribing and monitoring uh, hormone therapy. In addition, there's an uncertainty regarding the formulation that the patient actually gets. There's no standardization. This is not regulated by the FDA. And studies indicate a great variability in the actual prescription or formulation that the patient actually gets when, when, when they fill their prescription. Even this, was, this has been looked at in studies in which they've taken the same prescription to a number of different pharmacies, and when you look at the actual content, there's great variability as to what the patient actually gets, uh, despite the fact that they're getting the same prescription filled. Finally, there's this lack of even rudimentary data pertaining to the benefit and risk of compounded bioidentical hormone formulations. I, I typically will tell the patient that when they use these bioidentical hormones, they're basically conducting an, experiment, ex, an experimental study on the benefits and, just as importantly, the risk of that of that agent. A risk, a, 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 stud, a an experiment in which the n is one, meaning, namely, the patient. You're conducting an experiment on yourself.
0: Why is micronized progesterone becoming more popular?
1: Well, the use of micronized progesterone, I think, is becoming more popular among clinicians when they prescribe menopause hormone therapy for a number of reasons. One, you know, it, Prometrium, which is the, the brand name for micronized progesterone, interferes less with the beneficial impact of estrogen on the lipid pro- profile compared to what's typically been prescribed in the past, which is medroxyprogesterone acetate. Second. Uh, studies indicate that uh, micronized progesterone interferes less with the favorable vasodilatory action of estrogen on normal and diseased uh, arteries when exposed to acetylcholine. And the thought is that this is mediated through a a mechanism in which uh, there is an increase in nitrous oxide. Thirdly, Medroxyprogesterone acetate or Provera was the progestin agent that was used in WHI, the Women's Health Initiative. And oftentimes I think clinicians try to distance themselves away from what from the agent that was used in that trial in the hopes that that the adverse effects that were seen in that trial may not apply to a different progestin agent. Lastly, You know, there's a suggestion that maybe the higher breast cancer risk may be related to the progestin agent as well. Uh, The E3N trial was a study that was was a French observational cohort study that was reported in 2008. And although they found a higher risk of breast cancer in women taking estrogen plus progestin, it was in that particular study, the progestin agent, in which there was a higher risk, was medroxyprogesterone acetate or or Provera. Whereas the women in that study who took estrogen plus progestin, in which the the progestin agent was uh, micronized progesterone, there was no higher risk.
0: Can you discuss use of unopposed estrogen?
1: The one thing we know absolutely about the use of unopposed estrogen is that there's a higher risk of endometrial cancer in those patients. As a result, generally the use of unopposed estrogen is only for women that do not have a uterus. Having said that, there's a number of patients that have a hard time tolerating a progestin agent, and, and the approach to those patients is to try them on the di- uh, of the, the different types of progestin agents that are available. Even if, if they're not able to tolerate that, uh, there is a, uh, there is a, product out now that c- contains both estrogen plus what we call a CERM, a Selective Estrogen Receptor Modulator called, uh, called bazidoxephene, which instead of using a progestin to protect the endometrium, it uses the, S- the CERM as is, is your agent that protects the endometrium from uh, stimulation by the, by the estrogen in the formulation. In Europe, they, they, they've been using a levonorgestrel-containing IUD. This is, would be an off-label use of that IUD, but it's another potential way of providing uh, a progestin agent to a patient who's unable to tolerate it uh, with the uh, or oral formulations.
0: Uh, and lastly, doctor. Since unopposed estrogen seems to show a benefit on breast cancer and coronary heart disease uh, after looking at recent post hoc analysis of
1: WHI, what are your thoughts regarding long-term use? What the uh, Women's Health Initiative indicated regarding the the use of unopposed estrogen in women who uh, had previously undergone a hysterectomy was a higher risk of uh, deep venous thrombosis and pulmonary embolism, as well as a a small increased risk of stroke. So the use of unopposed estrogen would not be completely a free lunch. Now, the WHI did demonstrate the, uh, a lower risk of breast cancer mortality, and that was demonstrated in in a post hoc analysis of its findings that was uh, that looked at these women 11 years later. But you, you need to be cautious about this because that reduced mortality was not in a person who took the estrogen, unopposed estrogen therapy for 18 years, meaning the seven years of, of WHI and the, the 11 years that followed it. It was in women that took the estrogen therapy for seven years, and then following that, those women The great, great, great majority of those women discontinued estrogen. So all you can sort of really conclude from the standpoint of WHI is the fact that if you take unopposed estrogen for seven years, 11 years out, meaning 11 years after you stop estrogen therapy, you do not see an increased risk of breast cancer mortality, and instead you actually seem to see a reduction of mortality.
0: This is great information, doctor. Thank you so much for your time today.